Uh, let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, bow before you this morning, and uh, we are so grateful to you. We, we have uh, sung great anthems of praise as we turned our thoughts to you. Uh, we see what you're doing in the world through Mike and Janelle and, and uh, other missionaries who are uh, leaving the comforts of home and uh, the safety of home to go to uh, far-flung places of the world because they have a great desire for you, a great desire to have you, uh, to have people across the world know of Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary so that we might have eternal life and might pass from death to life. Lord, what a great message that you've given us. What a great message for our culture here. What a great message across the world. The love that you have for humanity, so much so that you would send your son to Calvary's cross and die for each one. Lord, if there's even one in our midst this morning who has yet to trust Jesus as Savior, we pray that you might work in their hearts through your spirit and draw them to yourselves, to yourself as you uh, show them their need of Jesus. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and have known him either for a short time or a long time, we pray that we are walking in a manner that pleases you, that we are growing in faith every day, that we are growing in your word every day. Father, guide us as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, section of scripture that we're in as we uh, study from here through the end of the book of Acts is a favorite section for me of the book of Acts because it's so personal and there's so much uh, about the person of Paul as he ministered to the Lord and how God directed him and the things that, that he would endure for the sake of the gospel. It's a very personal section uh, this, and especially our section this morning, chapter 20, verses 13 to 27, gives us a glimpse into Paul's life and his ministry. We have a glimpse into Paul's life and ministry. And as we, we study this, uh, we're also going to see what were the characteristics of Paul's ministry. And as we look at the characteristic of Paul's ministry in this chapter, we're also going to see what characteristics should be part of ministry today. Uh, one writer said about chapter 20, verses 13 through 38, this was the close of three missionary journeys covering about 12 years, A.D. 45 to 57. Now, think about that for a moment. How much Paul accomplished in those short years how far the gospel went, how many churches came into existence, how many believers who came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Paul's ministry. Think of all those years. Think of all that they did. Think of all these churches. And Paul is now entering a new phase of his ministry. Paul's eyes are now turned toward Rome. With everything in him, Paul wants to reach Rome. He's reached a large part of the world. Many have come to faith in Christ. Many churches have been established. And he now turns his attention to Rome. He first wants to make a, a visit to Jerusalem, 
We're going to see that in our passage this morning. And uh, then his eyes are cast toward Rome. Well, this writer went on to say, powerful Christian centers were planted in almost every city of Asia Minor and Greece in the very heart of the then known world. So many came to faith, so many churches planted. Well, you'll remember as we finished our section last week in verse 12, uh, there was an all-night church service where Paul preached, and you know what happened to Eutychus. He fell out of a third-story window. That's not really good for a person. And uh, he fell out of the third-story window and was dead. And what did Paul do? Nobody knows? Well, I'll give you a minute to read. No, no. Paul raised him from the dead. Paul raised him from the dead. They went back upstairs to the third story. They had some food together, and Paul preached till dawn. So uh, that's where we last left Paul. Now we read in verse 13, We went on ahead to the ship, and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. Now notice the we. Uh, this is called one of the we sections of the book of Acts. Wherever Luke is joining the party, wherever Luke is, is part of the action, he talks about what we did, the places we went. Uh, and Paul has been away from the missionary team. I mean, not Paul, but Luke has been away from the missionary team for a while, and now he has rejoined them, and he's part of the group. Uh, Paul, uh, Luke said, we went ahead uh, to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. Now, for whatever reason, Paul went ahead on foot. The sea route was longer than the land route. The sea route was longer than the land route, and therefore uh, Paul wanted some extra time to himself, and he decided to walk and join them later at one of the seaports. And so he uh, went ahead on foot. Now there's lots of speculation, and I, I, I love uh, uh, some of the speculation is uh, really, really uh, helps us to understand some of the speculation doesn't help us to understand. Uh, they, some speculate that Paul decided to take the land route, which was a shorter route, and because he uh, had been delayed earlier, and so he didn't want to leave so quickly. Others think that it's because he wanted to... Now, this is the one that I think is just absolutely can't be so that he wanted to stay there and see how Eutychus was doing. Now, come on, Paul healed him, right? Paul's not about to sit around saying, gee, I wonder if the healing took. I wonder if he's going to be alive tomorrow. I wonder if I did it right. No, that's not what's going on here. Uh, Paul, I'm sure, was certain that as God had worked through him and given him the ability to raise Eutychus from the dead, I don't think he stayed there to see how Eutychus was doing. Uh, I think it's something different. And I think that is he wanted to take some time in his life by himself so he could think. Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt like that in your life? 
I'd just love to have some time for myself so I could think. Uh, I think that's what was happening with Paul here. He wanted a, a, a little bit of time so he could think. He had a lot to think about, and I'm going to show you from some of the scripture in just a moment that Paul had a lot to think about. Number one, he, he I'm sure, thought about what went on at Troas. He had healed people. He had healed many people. This is the first, as far as we know, the first time that he resurrected somebody from the dead, that he raised them from the dead. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that there was a lot to think about at Tro, uh, about what happened at Troas. And so that was maybe part of the reason he wanted to walk. Uh, a second part, and probably more to the point, is found in chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. And now, Paul says, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I think that one of the things for sure that Paul was thinking about is his future. His future. God the Holy Spirit was warning him that difficulties were coming into his life. God the Holy Spirit was warning him that challenges were coming into his life. Very serious challenges. So serious that Paul says the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I think that if every city I went to, I got that kind of message from the Holy Spirit, I'd want to take a walk too. And think it through. You might want to ask yourself in that situation, how will my ministry end? How will my time serving the Lord end? Will I stay true to the end? Will the hardships, will the difficulties, will the, will the challenges of my life get me off the track? Or will I stay on the road till the end? You know, it happens to so many believers that they don't stay the course. They don't stay the course, particularly when challenges happen, particularly when things come into their lives. Maybe it's a, a, a diagnosis they don't want. Maybe it's a relationship that's broken. Man, many of those things happen, and so they don't stay the course. I think maybe Paul wanted to use this time to think about the Holy Spirit's warning, to think about which direction he was going, what he was doing, how would he end, how would he finish. Well, I think that's part of it. I think also that he was strengthening himself in God. I think he was probably using that time to, to pray, Lord, help me to be faithful. I, I don't think Paul was pray, praying, Lord, please take this all away. I think he was saying, Lord, I'm your servant. I've been your servant since, since the start. I'm going to continue to be your servant. I am going to finish my race well. I'm going to finish my race well. And I think he was asking God to strengthen him. I think he was thinking about his life in relationship to God's grace. Paul was no legalist. You know, on the surface, it's so easy for a legalist, a person who's legalistic, 
and likes to add to the law of God, likes to bring other people under their, own, their laws, not that come from the word of God, but their interpretation of the word, their wrong interpretation of the word of God. Legalism is so easy. You just check the boxes. What's hard is living by grace. Did you ever notice that? What's hard is, is living by grace. You see, legalism deals with the external. It deals with the exterior. But living by grace is challenging because it deals with the internal. It deals where, with where we really live. It deals with pride in our lives. It deals with self-righteousness righteousness in our lives. It deals with the sin that troubles our lives. Living by grace, realizing that what God does for me isn't because uh, of something in me, isn't because I am worthy of it, it's because his son is worthy and his son died for me. So God operates in grace. Living by grace is challenging. Uh, I try to picture it like this, and I've shared this analogy with you before, so if you remember it, uh, you don't have to listen. Uh, the different, how many of you ever have ever done paint by numbers? Paint by numbers. Well, I found out something this morning. More first service people do paint by numbers than second service people do. <laughs> I used to love paint by numbers when I was a kid. I just loved if my parents got me for Christmas, got me a paint by number kit, and, and uh, you, you remember how it goes, right? It's the, the manufacturer would take a beautiful piece of art, let's say like the Mona Lisa, and then they would draw it out with blue lines and it would give you paint, and, and each section was numbered, and it would give you a paint that corresponded to that number, and you would paint carefully. Now, I never realized you were supposed to paint over the blue line, so I painted up to the blue line. So I had a painting with all these blue lines and, and the colors. Uh, it was fun to do, and when you finished, you had, um, I guess you could call it art. but it wasn't a masterpiece. You see, God wants to make you and me his masterpiece. He wants to make us his masterpiece, and he does it, he does it by grace. He does it by changing the interior. And he wants us to be a masterpiece, and so to be a masterpiece, we have to live by grace. With legalism, you, you get a picture, a painting, but it's not art. I was sharing with the first service, I'll never forget, one of the, one of the top moments of my life was uh, I had an opportunity to, to, to go to Paris right after college, and uh, just, you know, it was one of those whirlwind tours, uh, 25, 25 countries in five days. <laughs> not quite that bad, but it was like that. And... Uh, I'll never forget in the, being in the Louvre and standing Louvre, and standing in front of the Mona Lisa. I don't know if it's still there today, but it was at that time. And it was behind glass, and uh, it, it, was, it was amazing because they allowed you to take pictures. 
but I was so in awe of standing in front of the actual Mona Lisa that I could not lift my camera and take a picture. And today I could kick myself that I didn't take a picture. But I was in awe standing in front of that beautiful masterpiece. Well, that's what God's trying to do with you and me. He wants to make us a masterpiece by his grace, not so that we can get the glory, but so that he gets the glory. See, that's the point. That's the point. He gets the glory. Not us. Well, I think that's the reason my fly is back. I, I have a pet fly that flies around here on Sunday morning and annoys me. Uh, it seems to show up every Sunday morning about this time. So if I, if I go like this, <laughs> I didn't go crazy. Nothing happened. I'm just getting rid of my fly. Uh, okay. So I think that's the reason that, that Paul did what he did. Uh, and, and decided to walk, so I think he could have time. Verse 14, back in chapter 20, when he met us at Asos, he took, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. And um, so that's kind of the, the, the journey that they took. We read in verse 16 that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Miletus was about 30 miles south of Ephesus, and Paul didn't want to take time. Remember, he had spent a lot of time in Ephesus, and he no doubt had led a lot of people to Christ in Ephesus, and he was trying to get back. He, he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for Passover and missed that. And so now Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. He still have an opportunity to get to Jerusalem by Passover. So he was really trying to, to, to make his way there. He didn't want to stop in Ephesus. He would have never been able to turn, turn loose of those folks. So instead, he stops at Miletus, 30 miles from Ephesus, and what he uh, does there is to call the elders from the church, the leaders from the church at Ephesus. We read in verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, what follows is the only message in the book of Acts where Paul speaks to believers. And I think that should make us sit up and take notice. Paul speaks to believers for the only time in the book of Acts we have a speech recorded to believers. We've, we've had his speeches uh, that we've seen sample sermons to synagogues. We've seen sample sermons to unbelievers in Lystra and Athens. And we've had those messages of Paul. But we haven't had... Mess, any messages of Paul in the book of Acts to this point to believers. So there's a lot here that I think is important for us. Now there's a lot on Paul's mind that he wants to share with these elders from Ephesus, that he wants to share with these leaders 
from Ephesus. I think that it's important for you and I to see what he has to say. What is it that Paul would want to say to these leaders of the church at Ephesus because he believes it's the last time he will ever speak with them? I think those words would be important. I think that what he has to say to them would be important. And as we look at this, what we see here, and we won't get through all six of these today, but we see here Paul's model of ministry. Paul's model of ministry in the first part of his message. The message is divided into a couple of parts. There's his model of ministry, which we're starting today. There is a warning to the elders at Ephesus. There is the the, uh, ethics of ministry. That is what makes up the three parts of Paul's message. Well, the first part here is, what are the characteristics that, what are the things that characterize Paul's ministry? And I think that they're important enough that we ought to know and, and look at ourselves and say, are, is our ministry characterized that way by these things? Let me tell you what the six are. We won't get through all six. Hopefully I'm going to get through the first two. Okay? Uh, the characteristics of, of Paul's ministry, number one, transparency and consistency. Number two, humility. Number three, tenderness and compassion. Number four, boldness in preaching. Number five, courage and single-mindedness. And number six, keeping the big picture. Those, I believe, are the six characteristics of ministry that come right out of the text, right out of what Paul is saying. Let's look at the first one. It's found in verse 18. When they arrived, this is the elders from the church at Ephesus. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. What Paul is saying to them is this. You have seen me up close and personal. You know how I think. You know how I teach. You know how I live. You know whether I was hypocritical in my life that I lived one thing and said I said one thing and lived another thing. Paul uh, said, my life is an open book to you. My life is an open book to you. Several times in this message, Paul says, you know. The first one is verse 18 that I just read. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Later on, in verse 20, he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but taught you publicly and from house to house. Uh, Later on in verse 34, he says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul is saying, my life is an open book to you. My life is an open book to you. I have been transparent. I have been consistent. And you can look at my life and you can see that. When, when you look today and you see so many, uh, call them famous, I guess, pastors, get into trouble because there's so much that they're hiding. There's so much that they're hiding. And they get into trouble and then they're found out. 
they haven't been consistent. They haven't been transparent. But it catches up with them. Paul said, you know me. You know my life. You've seen how I act. You've heard me. You've seen how I live. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can write this down for your own study if you want to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. And he's speaking here to Timothy and, uh, in the book of 2 Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching and my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. By the way, if you want to see what a person's really made of, you, you see them in their darkest moments. That's when you find out what they're really made of, what they're really living for, who they really are. And Paul said, in my darkest moments, you saw who I was. You saw who I was. Uh, I, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them, from all of them. The first characteristic of Paul's ministry was consistency and transparency, and that should be true for us as well, to be consistent in our ministry, to be transparent. The second is a little trickier. The second characteristic is a little trickier, and we'll get as far into this as we can this morning. Uh, the second one is found in verse 19, where we read, I serve the Lord with great humility. Now, humility is a tricky Christian virtue. Why is that? Because the minute you think you have it, you lost it. The minute you think you're humble, you're not. Or the other side of the coin is you become proud of being humble. Humility is tough. It's a difficult one. Humility, however, is, is commonly misunderstood. It's commonly thought of as, well, I have to think lowly of myself. Humility means I, I think lowly of myself. Let, let me say it this way. Humility is being so comfortable with ourselves, recognizing that we are what God has made us, that we don't think of ourselves at all. Humility is the freedom from thinking about ourselves. The freedom of competing with others, from competing with others. That's what humility is. Without humility, there is no ministry. Without humility, there is no ministry. True humility is not thinking lowly of ourselves. It certainly isn't thinking highly of ourselves. It is the freedom from thinking of ourselves at all, which leads to true freedom and the freedom to minister to others. Uh, in our last moments together this morning, I want to share a couple of thoughts about humility, some from C.S. Lewis, uh, another from uh, uh, a great leader who taught leaders by the name of Fred Smith. Uh, first of all, let's look at C.S. Lewis. 
C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that of course he is nobody. That's not humility. Lewis said, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said about what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's a great definition of humility. Uh, Fred Smith, that the person I just mentioned, he wrote an article. He used to write a lot of articles for Leadership Journal when it was in publication, which was a, a great journal. And you can, uh, I'm certain that if you Google this, if you want to, to uh, have this article, you could Google it. It's entitled, Conducting a Spiritual Audit. Conducting a Spiritual Audit. Twelve Questions to Keep Your Personal Accounts in Order. Uh, what happened is, and I'm, I'm reading from the article, he said, when I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, one member, the CEO of a major firm, asked me to lunch. He started the conversation by saying, I have a CPA to keep me liquid, a lawyer to keep me legal, and a doctor to keep me healthy, but I have no one to help assess my spiritual condition. Can you give me a spiritual audit? And uh, Fred Smith thought about that and thought, well, yeah, i sure I can. And uh, so he came up with 12 questions to ask. I wish I had time to share them. I don't, but I do want to share one. The number nine question is this. Is my humility genuine? Is my humility genuine? He says this. To me, nothing is so arrogant as false humility. Once I was asked to speak to a group, and before I spoke, a talented young lady sang. I talked to her and I turned to her and quietly said, you have a lovely voice. It shocked her. She wrapped her arms around her torso and bent all the way forward, saying in an hysterical voice, don't praise me, give God the glory. He said, I wanted to shake her out of this false humility, so I said, he didn't do the singing, you did. Then I said, I didn't say it was divine. I said it was lovely. He said, how I would like to have spent some time talking to her about accepting her gift, her strength with gratitude. Wouldn't it have been so releasing for her if she could have said, thank you very much, I thoroughly enjoy my gift. I appreciate the opportunity of singing for God's glory. Then she would not have been denying her gift, nor the compliment I gave her. Well, there's so much more we could say about humility. Humility is a product in our lives of Christ-likeness. It's a product in our lives of Christ-likeness. It's by faith. It's the ability to say, God has made me what I am. Not self-image, but Christ-image. 
that gives us proper self-esteem. Uh, God has made me what I am. And, and what that does is when I can get to that point where I say, God has made me what I am. He has given me the gifts I have. He has given me the life I have. He has given me the ministry I have. When I can say that, and then I am free to minister to others because not only has God made me what I am, but God has made others what they are. God has made you what you are. So I can serve you, give attention. We can serve each other. We're not threatened by each other. We're not threatened by each other's success. We're free to minister. Where there is not humility, where there is pride as a product of self, the I am nothing view or the I am something view, it interferes with us ministering to others. We can't minister to others if we're jealous of them. We can't minister to others if we have contempt for them. We can't minister to others if we are craving the attention. And so we can't give attention to others. We can't minister to others if we're threatened by their success. They shouldn't rise above our level or if we're threatened by their success, they may be gaining on me. That in the view of pride, we're not free to minister because we're always proving we're as good as or we're always trying to prove that we're better. That's why I say that without humility, there is no ministry. Now we'll get the other four characteristics of ministry next Sunday. Let's bow together. Lord God, thank you for Paul's life. He was an open book to both those around him and to us through your word. We pray, Father, that we might minister to each other in humility and minister to the non-Christian world around us in humility. We pray, Father, that we might be transparent and consistent in our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name.